Hello, and welcome to the Law Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Kate Wolf, LARB's Editor-at-Large. Hi, Hi Eric. Hi, Kate. <laughs> so today, we have an interview that Kate did with Francisco Cantu, who spoke about his book, The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border. Tell us a little bit about that interview. I was bummed that I didn't get to make it to that one, especially because we're recording at the very moment that Trump is down in San Diego yeah. at the border. Yeah. So it's very current, uh, Francisco's book. Can you talk a little bit about how the interview went? I thought it went well. The book is intense, and he's been coming under a lot of fire or some fire from um, activists who are accusing him kind of of trying to capitalize well, like on, profiting, yeah. on his experience and saying it's really not his story to tell. And so we talked a little bit about that. I didn't find that from the book per se, but okay. it, it's an opportunity to hear from someone who was in law enforcement and changed their minds about the validity of what they were doing. And I guess that's kind of what I took away from the book. It's okay. a very poetic interpretation of subjects that are difficult and I yeah, know. I have heard that he has kind of a writerly style. He when... went to school. He's published. It's an interesting read, and it seems that was trying to communicate the the trauma of of what he saw and experienced. That's what I took away without ever saying it too boldly. There's a lot of dreams, haunting of dreams, grinding of teeth, and calls to his mother late at night. Lots of mother stuff in this book, which I tried to ask him about. Sounds great. All right, let's yeah. get to that interview. Yeah. Today I'm speaking with Francisco Cantu. Francisco is an author and a translator who received an MFA in nonfiction from the University of Arizona. His writing and translations have been featured in Best American Essays, Harper's, M Plus One, Orion, and Guernica, as well as On This American Life. Between 2008 and 2012, Cantu also served as an agent for the United States Border Patrol, which is the subject of his first book, The Line Becomes a River. Francisco, thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm curious, what led you in the first place to want to be a border agent? Well, I grew up in the Southwest. I grew up in Arizona. And my mom was a park ranger. So I always grew up sort of close to the outdoors, close to the desert. And then in college, I went on to study immigration and border issues. And I went away for school. I went to Washington, D.C. And as I was looking for what to do next, you know, I had all of these big questions about the border. You know, a lot of the book learning that I had done in school felt very severed from the reality that I knew growing up in the Southwest and close to the border. And so I was really looking to kind of connect those dots and to sort of answer these bigger questions that I had about policy and border enforcement. And in terms of being an enforcer as opposed to an advocate, what do you think made you gravitate towards the role of law enforcement? It's a good question. I mean, I didn't ever consider myself a law enforcement-minded type person. I hadn't thought of it until, you know, I was at a job fair and kind of jokingly picked up a Border Patrol flyer at a Homeland Security booth. And I think what really what really made me consider it was I was looking, you know, I was hyper-obsessed with the line, the boundary itself as a physical space and what happened in that physical space. And so, you know, I was thinking a lot about 
what are the ways that I can be out there day in and day out, not just, you know, a weekend trip or a camping for a, you know, targeted visit or something like that. And the m- more I thought about it, the more I thought that Border Patrol agents are kind of the only people out there 24 hours a day around the clock other than migrants and smugglers. I'm wondering when you told your mom that you were going to become a border agent, she seemed to feel like that was a bad decision. But something she says was, you know, you have an education, basically saying you could do whatever you wanted. Was her main objection like one of the kind of role of law enforcement or the kind of class of law enforcement in our society? Or was it more of a moral objection? do you think, when she asked you about that in the book? I think it was sort of all of the above. Yeah. I think my mom was terrified first and foremost for my safety. I think she was sort of horrified by the idea of the Border Patrol and the idea of me doing that work. You know, I think she was concerned with me losing a moral sense of who I was. She also just didn't understand... Because it was like, oh, this isn't a job that you need to do. You know, a lot of people enter this kind of work because it's the best option for you. But, you know, as my mother, she's like, you know. That seems to be the implication (laughs) of, you know, when she says you have an education, obviously you don't need to do this kind of work. Right. Um, She she would have been much, it would have made much more sense to her, I think, if I had continued to work in the nonprofit arena or advocacy work or, you know, something that was research education based. Right. Do you have military or law enforcement in your family or? No. Okay. No. So it was, you know, I mean, my mother was a park ranger, so she had been a federal employee her whole life. But, you know, we had no one in our family that was law enforcement. You know, I guess that's not entirely true. My stepdad's father was in the military and Mm -hmm. that was a big part of his upbringing. So, you know, maybe... I guess there was precedent for that. I see. Well, I'd like to return to fathers later because they're conspicuously absent from the book in a lot of ways. And I think that's interesting. But um, for now, I wanted to ask just about your when you were in school to become an agent or going through the training process, what kind of attitudes were taught towards migrants? Was it a nuanced portrayal of the problem or was it more hard-edged when you were at the academy? My experience of the training is that you are basically taught that everything and everyone that you encounter is first and foremost to be seen as a threat. I think that's sort of law enforcement canon. I mean, I think that's the prevailing thinking in most military and law enforcement training. But in the Border Patrol, in my experience, the overwhelming majority of the people that I encountered were basically refugees, you know, coming for, or economic migrants, you know, coming here fleeing violence in their home countries, or coming here to reunite with their families, or coming here looking for work. And, you know, of course, that's part of the training, you know, like they, there's this tacit understanding that's passed down that, oh, you know, like there's, there's the bad guys, there's the drug smugglers, and then, you know, and then there's all these other people that we arrest, but you're never encouraged to have a humanitarian way of looking at your job. That was something that I actually kind of had to seek out. Like I I signed up to get trained as an EMT to gain these extra skills because I wanted to be, I had this naive idea that I could be a force for good within the agency and that I could somehow do good work even though I was part of an agency that I knew 
didn't necessarily represent my values. Mm -hmm. So you come to that, you came to the job with that in mind. There wasn't a transformational moment for you in terms of you thinking, oh, you know, I can't do this like per the protocol. I have to do it differently. You set out to approach being an agent in a humane manner. Is that true? I did. I mean, you know, my concerns were sort of twofold. It was I looked at the Border Patrol as an extension of my education. I looked at it as I felt that I would be able to step into this job and to sort of gain this perspective and these answers to these questions that would elude people who didn't have that kind of experience and that I would, you know, after doing the job for four or five years, maybe be able to use those answers as a policymaker or an immigration lawyer. And then the other part of my thinking was that, oh, you know, I because I speak Spanish, because you know, because I've lived in, and studied abroad in Mexico, that I can be a force for good within the agency, be a humane Border Patrol agent among perhaps several, many not-so-humane Border Patrol mm -hmm. agents. But looking back on it, I mean, I think that was naive. And when did that idea start to crack for you in practice, in your actual work? Because early on in the book, there are a couple instances that you just, where you seem pained from what you've either seen or what you have to do. So maybe you could just tell us anecdotally, what made you question the possibility of being a humane agent? I remember while well, I was new to the field, and one of the jobs that you get assigned is just to transport people who are apprehended in the field by the field agents and to kind of go pick them up and take them back to the station. And so I was called to pick up a man and his wife who had been, who had shown up in this village. You know, they were lost in the desert and they were asking to be taken in. And I was the one who showed up to pick them up. And the woman was pregnant. And as I was talking to them, it came to light that she spoke fluent English and that she had grown up in Iowa. And she was actually a teacher. And she had left the U.S. because a family member was sick, and she had left to care for them. And she was trying to cross back over because she wanted her child to have the same upbringing and opportunities that she had had growing up in the United States. And, you know, we had this whole interaction, conversation, and then her husband, seeing that, you know, we had a connection and that we were speaking English, he asked me, if I would kind of do them a favor and just instead of arresting them and fingerprinting them, if I would just take them back and drop them at the border and let them, you know, skip the whole deportation thing. And, of course, I said no, and this is my job, and you know that. But I remember making a point to ask them their names. Mm -hmm. I remember feeling like I had had, you know, this kind of long conversation with them and... You know, this woman was pregnant. I remember asking her to be safe and to think about the child before they crossed again because they had been left behind by their group because they couldn't keep up. And I introduced myself to them and they told me their names. And then, you know, a couple hours later, I was back out on patrol and I was sitting in my car and I realized that I had completely forgotten their names. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that particular interaction stands out to me is because I think that that's really the first sign of dehumanization is being unable to distinguish a name, something that makes someone an individual. And in terms of seeing your fellow agents do things that didn't sit right with you, was there a particular instance of that where you suddenly 
came to consciousness of realizing, hmm, this is just kind of an untenable situation? Or I mean, I think there was this accumulation. I guess this is a more direct response to the question you asked before. There is this slow accumulation of, you know, you step into this institution, you think that that you can sort of be unscathed by the bad parts and that you can be this humane version of yourself within an institution that is less than humane. But, you know, there was an accumulation of encounters like those, just, you know, week after week after week, where you're apprehending these people and you're sending them back to the place that they're risking their life to flee. And I think it was, so it was a gradual process. You know, there was definitely times when if a coworker of mine was using some slur that I'd be like, hey man, like, not around me. Like, that's not cool. But what is that? I mean, we're all wearing the same uniform. And I think, especially after leaving, this book is really, it really began as a way to make sense in my participation in an institution that I think perpetuates violence and violent, flawed policies. And I think that separating the individual from the institution that they're a part of, you give all these parts of yourself over in order to help the institution carry out its goals. And so it's hard to separate them. Mm-hmm. So in the book, you you work both as a, in the field as an agent and then you move to an office and you're working as an intelligence officer is what your title was? Yeah, I was like a low-level intelligence analyst. Analyst. Okay, so maybe you could tell us the difference. I mean, besides the obvious is when you're out in the field and, you know, then the others, you're in the office. But what was the larger difference between those two jobs? And how did being in the office give you perhaps a larger sense of immigration policy in the United States and how it's constructed and carried out? Or did you get that perspective being in the office more than being in the field? I applied for that intelligence position thinking that that kind of work would give me a chance to sort of assemble like a bigger picture of what was going on. I almost felt like I needed to step away from the field work in order to to look at things from a little bit further back. But, you know, there was a strange, you're sitting at a desk you're sort of detached from like the day-to-day reality of what's going on, but you're seeing it in this other way where what made the biggest impression on me from that time was the way that violence gets distilled into these little reports and photographs. You know, there was this one particular email that we would get every single day that was a distillation of all of the the drug cartel violence that had happened in the last 24 hours in Mexico. And it was, you know, just like gory photograph after gory photograph after, you know, the shootout after that massacre. And looking at that every day really began, that violence began to seep into my subconscious and my dreams. And my thinking was really concerned with how detached we are from that. I think as Americans, you know, later I moved to El Paso and I was doing intelligence work in El Paso. And during those years, Juarez had, I think, just been unseated as the most violent city in in the world. You know, violence was starting to taper down, but it was still the dichotomy of living in El Paso as the safest city in the United States. And looking at Ciudad Juarez every single day when you drive to work, you're literally looking at the mountains and the buildings of Juarez every day. And the disconnect that it takes to just go about your life in the safe bubble of America and to be sort of ignorant to the violence that is, you know, really pushing people here. 
And to those who are not being pushed, it saturates their reality. And so I became interested in, you know, how entire societies become desensitized to violence or, or normalized living with violence. And I think that that's unique to the borderlands. In your research for the book, how deeply did you get into the history of the border? And maybe you could walk us through just a little bit of how the current line came to be where it is and when enforcement began the way it is now. I think because of my upbringing with, you know, this naturalist mother, park ranger, I have very strong connection to the desert as a physical space and as a natural environment. And so kind of the one thing that I liked about my job was being outdoors, was being in the desert, and was the kind of intimacy that I formed with the desert just because of how much time I spent out there. And so when I was writing the book, you know, I became really concerned with looking at how, because a big theme of this book is how borders bring violence onto a landscape, into people's lives, into societies. And so, you know, that question of how is this border, which we can accept mountains and rivers as natural demarcations, but the border in Arizona, New Mexico, California is just this this line literally etched onto the landscape. And I became interested in how that arose. So the research that I did was sort of about, you know, the first boundary commissions that went to, you know, because it was a treaty, but then they had to actually go demarcate where people could, where this property ended and the other property began. And the first thing that stood as any sort of marker were just these obelisks. You know, there was a team of like 60 surveyors that went out and slowly made their way across the desert, erecting, you know, every couple of miles, a stone or iron obelisk. And that was really the only demarcation of where one country began and the other ended. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in Studio City, California. We are speaking with Francisco Cantu, author of The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border. We will continue that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. This is Kate Wolf, Editor-at-Large for the Los Santos Review of Books, and I'm joined in the studio today with my co-host of this program, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor-at-Large, and he has a book recommendation. I do, Kate. So I love being able to, like, offer book recommendations because I feel like I never get to do them on the show, and there's already so many books that I'm reading that I want to recommend to friends. The one that I have for you today is Jeffrey C. Stewart's The New Negro, The Life of Elaine Locke. This is a little bit of like an esoteric choice, perhaps, I get that. But it is a book that I have been really, really excited to see finally come into publication. It was published last month, and it's about Elaine Locke, who's a very, very famous figure in African-American culture and politics from the early 20th century. He was a renowned writer, philosopher, educator, and patron of the arts, uh, alternately referred to as either the dean of the Harlem Renaissance or the midwife of the Harlem Renaissance. So he was central to a lot of what we recognize today as the new Negro, quote-unquote, aesthetics. 
Along with W.B. Du Bois, he's probably the single most important thinker of African-American aesthetics from the early 20th century. That gets a little bit more complicated as you move forward in the 20th century. But he was a brilliant mind. And what's so exciting about this biography, which is magisterial, it's over 700 pages. Mm. So it's deeply, deeply researched. I think it might have taken Stuart something like 10 years to actually write, which seems glacial in all other publishing timeframes, but is actually for an academic work of this scope is pretty impressive. But what's unique about this is that it not only gets at kind of Locke's life as as far as his writing and his ideas about Black art and aesthetics, but it also gets into his sexuality, which has been something that people have known about for a long time, that he was a gay man, but he was kind of not really out exactly. And one of the beauties of this is that it really brings that richness of Locke's life, including his sexuality, to the forefront and it is just dazzling to read. And you said it's an academic book. What's the tone like? How does it move? Is it telling anecdotes and stories, or is it more theoretical about why Locke is so important? No. So in that sense, it is published by Oxford University Press. So it is a university press book and may, because of its subject matter, be primarily of interest to academics, but it's written in a beautiful narrative style. Okay. And it does that beautiful thing that a deeply researched biography can do, where it really brings you into the kind of sensorium or feeling of what that life was like. Like, there's a beautiful opening where he talks about the death of Locke's mother and using all of these bits that he's gathered from interviews with people who knew Locke, but also this kind of previously unavailable research materials. He's able to piece together the portrait of a grieving son who is at once grieving the loss of his mother, but in other ways might feel more liberated as a gay man because he no longer has this person with whom he had a deeply, deeply intimate relationship. Wow. Sounds great. So what's the title of the book again? It's The New Negro, The Life of Elaine Locke by Jeffrey C. Stewart. Check it out. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution. And the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Francisco Cantu, author of The Line Becomes a River, Dispatches from the Border. Your family is Mexican, but Spanish, but it all kind of blends together. Maybe you could explain the position of Mexicans who lived you know, in California or Arizona. Um. Yeah, I mean, you know, my... 
my grandfather's family was from um, Nuevo León, from Monterrey, and they they came to the United States fleeing the violence of the Mexican Revolution, um, and they and they settled in in California, and they considered themselves Spanish, but I think you know that was this. Uh, classism racism that was you know it has has always existed in mexico i think um you know the fact is that they had they and their family had lived in mexico for three three or four hundred years right so they're mexican right right <laughs> um but you know they uh the new mexico like the new mexico spanish thing i think is is quite different i mean that's a whole i don't know so much about it but i think that's like yeah, that's that. Like the people who are there from Spanish blood in New Mexico feel very Spanish. And, right. Um, right. I don't know. Speaking of your family, um, like I alluded to before, your mother plays such an important role in this book, and um, she seems to kind of serve as a moral conscience for you. And you want to talk to her. You call her late at night. She calls you to see if you're okay. You, some, when something bad happens, you reach out, if not just mentally, to your mother in the book. But I also noticed the conspicuous absence of, of a father here, of a father figure. You, you mentioned your stepfather, but you never speak about your father. And I thought that was just uh, interesting in a book that seems to be so much about male violence, and it's centered around violence. And if it's not too personal, I wonder if you could share why why your father is excised from this book. Well, I you know, I, I grew up with sort of three father figures in my life, my biological father, and then you know my my mother and he separated when I was very young, and and so I I you know was sort of raised by my stepfather, and then my mother and he divorced when I was you know in middle school, and and my mother remarried, and so I had another stepdad that sort of shepherded me through my teenage years, but I mean you know the reason that the narrative centers so much around that relationship between my mother and I is because, you know, of all the people in my life, my my mother was really the one who kept holding me accountable for, you know, who I was outside of my job and for the reasons I had given her for, for joining the Border Patrol. And so she was always sort of, you know, reminding me you know, are, are you know, are you learning those things that you joined to learn? Are you, you know, she's kind of like always reaching out to me because I think she, she saw the ways that I was losing myself in this job or losing track of, you know, the person that I was when I stepped into that job. Mm-hmm. And so I think my mother was really a tether to, you know, this larger sense of myself and, and my moral self. And, you know, if it wasn't for my mother and and these sort of dreams and nightmares that I had uh, that manifested in my subconscious, I, I think those were really the only two things tethering me, tethering me to the real. <laughs> huh, me. I see. So so you eventually leave. You know, the book is written um, very lyrically and uh, kind of impressionistically and elliptically. So you. You never really say the growing, you don't d- describe in much detail the growing frustration and horror that you find working for the Border Patrol. It's more kind of shown in dreams and in, in kind of lyrical, you know, endings of beautiful passages. Um, I was wondering if there is a reason why you chose to write the book like that 
I, I can understand in a literary sense why you would do it, but is there another reason you didn't want to describe too much? I mean, with this book, I was, you know, concerned with leaving enough space for the reader to kind of inhabit the world that I was living in and mm -hmm. maybe, you know, the consciousness that I was developing or the consciousness that the consciousness that was being stifled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so I... I didn't want to just be opining on on all of these things and reasons. Uh, you know, I wanted to. My hope is that that horror and that those doubts and that unease of conscience accumulates for the reader as well. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, of course, of course, the book is is principally concerned with interrogating the way that violence was normalized in my life and in my work on an individual level, but it's also concerned with more broadly how we normalize these things as a society and as a culture and, and how we participate in or accept rhetoric and institutions that dehumanize others. Mm -hmm. and, and so I didn't want to be too directive with that. I wanted that to sort of, I wanted to leave enough space for, for the reader to kind of inhabit and experience those things uh, through the stories and through the accumulation of them. And was there one incident in particular that made you decide to leave your job? Because that's not well, really described. There, um, I do remember in the Border Patrol, there's not really a culture of, of talking about, you know, how, how you might be affected by the work. And so I always, you know, just went through my life thinking that I was fine and that like this was my job and, and, and that's okay. And I'm, I, you know, would have these nightmares just, you know, for years I had these nightmares the whole time I was in the border patrol and, and, and I kind of pushed them away. I never really thought about them, but they, you know, they would get worse and worse. And, and one of the nightmares that I would always have was this recurring dream where my teeth would be crumbling out of my mouth or, or I would be clenching my jaws until teeth burst inside my mouth. And I remember going to the dentist, and the dentist told me that I was grinding my teeth in my sleep, and that I had ground through, you know, several layers of enamel in my molars. And this is what people do when they have a lot of stress in their lives, is, are you stressed? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, you know, I thought, no. But, but that was the first time that I was confronted with a real-world manifestation of that more subconscious horror, I guess. And, and I think that was the first time that I really looked at myself and said, and started to accept that something m might be wrong and that I might not be okay. Hmm. So you, at the time while you were working, you pushed those kind of thoughts aside, but they would manifest in other ways. Is that what you're Exactly. Saying? Yeah, oh, I see. So how, how deep into your service was that when you had that realization. I pushed aside those dreams for years, the entire time I was in the Border Patrol. That dental appointment was maybe two and a half years or something after starting the year. Mm -hmm. I don't go to the dentist very often. I've <laughs> revealed that on your radio show. That's okay. <laughs> Who does? Um, and, you know, there was another moment when uh, I went to see this movie, and it was a movie about a man who slowly loses the ability to distinguish between his dreams and, and reality. And it's kind of a thriller. And I remember driving home from that movie 
and just like breaking down on like pulling my car over on the side of the road and like weeping. And I think that was also a moment where I was like, you know, it, it hit too close to home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was shortly after I, I, that was shortly before I left. That was a month or two before I um, made the decision to leave. And did you end up coming away with um, thoughts about how border policy can be fixed? I mean, have you gone on now to um, do what you initially set out to do, which is to kind of become more of an advocate? I think that was one of the most disconcerting things about leaving the job because I only felt like I had more questions. I only felt like everything seemed more complex to me. You know, I had kind of entered looking for these black and white answers that I could take out and, and, you know, wield as these tools. Um, And I only came away, you know, feeling like I had just descended into more and more grayness. And I think that's really where this book started, was as a way to, you know, account for the things that I had seen and done and participated in and to try to make sense of that and to see if, you know, through writing I would come to any answers. I mean, I think the idea of policy answer has has shrunken to me. It, it, it's almost like beyond, you know, because I'm when I left the Border Patrol, what I brought with me and what stayed with me were these individual encounters and these individual conversations. And... And so I think that the way that we talk about border issues and the way that we talk about immigration is so severed from, you know, any idea of actual people, of the actual people that are affected by them. You know, even the metaphors that we use to talk about migrants, you know, like a wave of of migrants or an, an uptick as if migrants are just a line on the graph. You know, we talk about a a cat and mouse game of enforcement at the border. And, you know, all of these things encourage us to look at migrants as, as part of some indistinguishable mass of people. Mm -hmm. And our rhetoric now, I think is, is even, it's worse than ever before, right? Like now we're conflating migrants with MS-13 gang members. Yeah. And, and there's a, there's an urge to simplify things so that, you know, you cross that border, no matter what forces, in the world have pushed you across it and you're a criminal and we're supposed to just accept that as mm-hmm. gospel truth and and you know throw out any questions about the humanity of those people. Right. Yeah, it's a complicated difficult subject and I'm sure dehumanizing people makes it easier to make laws that um put people's lives at risk every day. Um you've received a lot of pushback from the book, protests, lots of people, you know, complaining about you kind of selling your story, um, benefiting from your time as a police officer. How do you react to that? And how is that? How much was that anticipated? And, you know, what 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 is that reaction kind of made you has it made you question anything about the book or? I always anticipated pushback from the right. And, and that pushback has been very strong, too. But, you know, the, the, the pushback from the left, you know, I think a lot of it is rooted in this question of, you know, who gets to speak, like who gets to tell the story of what happens at the border. And I absolutely agree with that, that criticism because, you know, at the end of the day, this narrative is centered around 
my experiences as a as a person with great privilege and great power as a as a former law enforcement agent and so i think for a lot of people who you know who are who are protesting the book at that face value it's sort of you know why aren't we listening to the voices that have been here the whole time telling us this you know the voices of the undocumented people who are living in our communities with this problem you know why why do you need a border patrol ex border patrol agent to come along and tell you this and i think you know a lot of the pushback is also a pushback to the the kind of media that the book is is getting and and the sort of platform that's that's being thrust upon the book and me and i agree i mean i think we absolutely need to open up more spaces mm. for those voices because you know that's the reason this book ends with the literal voice of jose i mean he narrates the the final portion of this book and it's because i think that people like him have so much more to tell us about immigration and border issues than I do, or right. then just our remind us who Jose Jose is. Oh, that we haven't talked about him. No, but we. Here, and, I'll just start. And, okay, I'll start. I'll reframe that last little section. Okay. So, you know, there's a a conscious move in the narrative to to sort of shift away from myself as the first person narrator of the story to in the final third of the book um, relate the story of of this friend of mine who I became close to after leaving the border patrol. His name was Jose. He lived in the United States for 30 years. He had three U.S. citizen children. And then he left the country uh, when his mother died and he couldn't get back in. And and he was arrested trying to cross the border. And um, becoming close with him and seeing things from, from that side, you know, being close with his family, shepherding them through this, like, deportation industrial complex of America really opened my eyes to the way that the border can be thrust upon someone. Um, you know, especially with regard to his children who never crossed a border, all of a sudden the border was was thrust into their lives. And I think that, you know, people like Jose, they are, you know, the undocumented dreamers, people who are living with like this day-to-day reality of this day-to-day fear of deportation that could that could come at any time. Um people who are, you know, risking their lives in the desert right now as we speak. Like, those are the voices that have the most to tell us about uh, immigration and, and border issues, you know, more than I do, more than any politician or policymaker. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in that regard, how how ridiculous is this idea of building a wall along the border? I think, you know, first and foremost, a lot of people don't understand that that there already is a lot of fencing along our southern border and there are walls along our southern border something like 700 miles um you know and and that's because we've been here before and we've had this debate before and we passed a build the wall bill in 2006 um it was called the secure fences act some of that fencing was uh in the area where i worked we had 20 foot high uh panels of steel mesh and I can tell you that, you know, it really didn't stop much at all. Uh, smugglers had figured out a way to, you know, pry open these panels from the ground up and use hydraulic jacks to, to lift it high enough so that cars could drive underneath. <laughs> and, you know, for smaller things like uh, people, they would just cut a, a door-sized opening with a welder. And so I don't think that's an argument for a bigger, stronger, more impenetrable barrier. I think that... 
that shows us no matter what obstacle we put at the border, you know, it's going to be subverted. You know, people will find a way up, over, around, under it. You know, I think the answer is really a policy solution and a policy solution that, that ends this tactic that we've had for decades of enforcement through deterrence, which, you know, by building walls and hiring more Border Patrol agents, just pushes people out to the most remote, dangerous parts of the desert. And that's where, you know, hundreds of, of people die every summer. And I think something like six to 7,000 people have lost their lives since the year 2000. And, and that's not a part of our our immigration debate right now. And I think we have to be talking about those people who, who lose their lives in the desert. Thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We've been speaking with uh, Francisco Cantu, author of The Line Becomes a River. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.